You're listening to The Dirt on the Past, a show on history and archaeology and why it matters today. You can find us on the Extreme History Project website and also on kgvm.org. Thanks for listening. Welcome to The Dirt on the Past from the Extreme History Project and KGVM Community Radio. Whether digging up a site or dusting off the archives, we bring you some of the most fascinating and cutting-edge research in history and archaeology and discuss why it matters today. Join me, Nancy Mahoney, alongside co-host Crystal Alegria, as we converse with anthropologists, archaeologists, and historians about how they bring the past alive. Welcome to this week's edition of the show. I'm Nancy. And I'm Crystal. And we are co-hosts of The Dirt on the Past. This week is kind of a special week for two reasons. The first reason is that we're going to be interviewing um, our own Crystal Alegria and co-founder Marsha Fulton, which we're so excited. She's going to be joining us via Zoom from Maine. And these two women, I'm so excited to interview about how they conceived of this organization and 10 years later have built it into um, a pretty amazing institution here in Bozeman, Montana. But Crystal, you and I are also going to be going on a little bit of a hiatus. Yeah, yeah, not not too long, just a little bit of just a few weeks, but we, in we July, want people to miss us a little yeah. bit, right? Just yeah. a little bit. Yeah. yeah. So July, uh, super busy, both for you and for me. I'll be out of the country for about three weeks, yeah. Italy and Greece. You're going to be still doing all of extreme histories walking tours, lecture series, all of that. Yeah. Oh, and how was the talk by Ellen Baumler last oh, night? Oh, it was wonderful. She talked about cemeteries, which, of course, is near and dear to my One heart. One of so. your favorite and Marcia's yes. favorite Marcia's topics. favorite, Absolutely. too. Yeah. yeah. So it was a great talk. It's on our YouTube channel. You can just go to Extreme History Project YouTube, um, and you can find her presentation. It was wonderful. So Wonderful. Yeah. That's yeah. so great. And um, I think... Uh, we will be back sort of early August yeah. with um, some new exciting interviews, and we'll just be continuing on from there for kind of year two of yeah. The Dirt on the Past. It's kind of going to be like our second season. Yeah. So, so you know, this is kind of the end of our first season is kind of how I'm seeing it. And then... Um, we'll be starting our second new season. So. We're going to be having some amazing interviews with authors, um, books published by University of Chicago Press, and we'll be um, also traveling to some conferences, history conferences, archaeology conferences. So we'll have a lot of new and exciting things, especially now that COVID's over. We're going yeah. to be able to sort of expand what we can do in the podcast, go out into the right. field a little yeah. bit. Yeah, do a little bit of field podcasting, which will be great. And a little but, scary, because yeah, we yeah. have to record on our own. I know. We won't have Steve with us We're in gonna, the field. But we, now which, we have his phone number. So right, now yeah. we, we think <laughs> we got the tech line help set up. <laughs> so, yeah. So Okay. So um, so we're going to stop ignoring our guests. Yes, and, and welcome yes. here. here. Welcome, Marsha, to The Dirt on the Past. Thanks, Nance. It's great to be here. It's so great to have you. And we, we want to start off by telling our listeners um, a little bit about you. Okay. So Marsha has taught in both the anthropology and art history departments of several universities, including Kent State University in Ohio, William Patterson University in New Jersey, and the State University of New York at New Pulse. Her museum background includes working in the North American Archaeology Lab at the American Museum of Natural History in New York City and remodeling the Native Cultures area of the Yellowstone Gateway Museum in Livingston, Montana. She has also worked at many North American archaeological sites around the country and has developed several archaeology education programs for K-12 students. Her business experience includes a degree in marketing, as well as 15 years of retail management. She has contributed her marketing skills to several nonprofit organizations, including Extreme History, and specializes in web-based marketing opportunities. She also has a background in both theatrical and interior design. Marcia co-founded the Extreme History Project, 
along with Crystal Alegria in 2009, and that is the reason that we're having this um, interview today. So welcome, Marcia. We're so excited to have you here, and we want to start by asking you a question that we ask most of our guests. How is it, or, or, or when, and why do you think you first got interested in history and archaeology? Um, well, I was thinking about that uh, just the other day, and actually, there are two different stories for history and one for archaeology. Um, my my history story started when I was about, I think I must have been about maybe fourth or fifth grade. Um, my uh, elementary school class took a field trip. The classic story, right? Right, took a field right. Trip. <laughs> To, to a local historical site. It was, uh, it's called Hale Homestead. I grew up in Northeast Ohio and um, it's uh, somewhere in Ohio. I don't really know, remember where it was, but it, it was an old 18th century farm and a recreation of the farmhouse and the outhouses and the, um, and the farm itself. And I remember very clearly going there, taking a tour, learning about um, the, the the bed warmers that would warm the sheets uh, on a cold night and seeing how the beds were made with the knot, uh, the knotted rope. Um, I remember learning about a salt box house and what that meant um, and how that was a, a, a reflection of the salt box itself, which was how they stored salt. And I was just absolutely immersed in the 18th century when I when I was there and it just just lit a light in me that was going to just carry me through the rest of my life. Um, Archaeology took a little longer. It wasn't something that I had jumped into right away but um, by the time I got to, to university and I was studying art history and particularly the ancient world I got very excited about um, uh, Greek and Roman, Egyptian, all of the good ancient archaeological Absolutely. stuff. And, uh, yeah. Yeah. and it was actually um, right before I started back to school um, at Kent State, I was watching um, a History Channel program on, uh, on the excavation of a Roman mosaic somewhere in uh, North Africa. And it was so amazing to watch this process and to um, have this, they had to call in this expert who was like one of only two people who knew precisely how to excavate a Roman mosaic. And he was called in from the Louvre. And I thought, you know what? I want to be one of those people. <laughs> I want to be one of the two people in the world that excavate a Roman mosaic. And so that's what's really spawned my interest in archaeology. So that's what brought me into art history with an, a, a, a second degree in anthropology. Yeah. Have you excavated a mosaic ever? Did that, did that I have dream? Not. Okay. It turns it turns no. out it's very mm. tedious and probably, you know, yes. it the, it did its job getting you interested, but you didn't need to go all the way to that career exactly. So, good good for you. Um no. so let's start by by backing so up. Cool. Yeah. <laughs> let's start by backing up um to the story of the two of you and um, move from, you know, your interests and background. And Crystal, we've talked about yours on previous podcasts, how your path brought you here. Um, what brought you two together? How did you meet and not just meet, but how did you start collaborating and, and working together? Go ahead, Marcia. <laughs> well, I guess I started the process. <laughs> I was working on a, a local project there in Montana for um, uh, Pine Creek Elementary School. I was starting to develop a, uh, a an archaeological educational program for the school. And I, I had recently moved to Montana and wasn't quite up to speed on Montana archaeology. Of course, as you know, every region has its own sort of archaeology and you have to kind of get up to speed on that. So I I had contacted uh, Montana State University's um, anthropology department to kind of meet with someone, learn a little bit more about Montana archaeology and or maybe find someone that would be willing to kind of co come on as an advisor to the project. Um, and I'm pretty sure I met with 
um, Dr. Mike Neely in the department and I sat down with him and, and while I was talking to him, he asked me if I'd ever heard of Project Archaeology and I said, well, no, I hadn't. And he explained that it was an archaeological education organization that was sort of centered there at uh, in the anthropology department and um, he pointed me out uh, around the corner to the offices and I walked over to the offices and um, right there in the doorway was Crystal and uh, her uh, partner, Jeannie, who is also working there, Jeannie Mo. And um, I walked in and sort of explained a bit about my project that I wanted to do. And, and Crystal was very enthusiastic about it. And that's kind of how we met. And from that point on, we started to meet and talk about the project. Crystal was a big help and, and advisor as, as I went forward with the project. And uh, that's kind of how we, how we met and how we got started. So a little bit of, of serendipity and overlap in what you were what you were doing originally. And 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 from there, I, I know you you developed a friendship and um, it took a little while along into that friendship for you guys to really hatch the idea for extreme history. So how did that idea come about? Where did it come from? And when did you actually decide to create extreme history as an organization? Crystal, you can take that one. Okay. <laughs> All right. So as we were, you know, talking about this Pine Creek project, um, that was the archaeology project that Marcia was working on. And as we were talking about this project, um, Marcia was volunteering at the Gateway Museum in Livingston, Montana, the Yellowstone Gateway Museum in, in Livingston, Montana. And we were talking about um, archaeological sites and it came up that uh, I was interested at the time in Fort Parker. And so, and Marsha, you were, were you looking for a project or how did, um, with, with the Yellowstone Gateway Museum or how did that work? Yeah, I was kind of exploring the idea of finding a local archaeological site that we could connect to uh, the, the museum itself and do and do some education around it and, you know, curate the artifacts, that kind of thing, and just make it something that could be part of the, um, the museum's mission. Yeah. So we started um, talking about this place, which is called Fort Parker. And what Fort Parker is, is it's the first Crow Indian agency that was located just outside of what is presently Livingston, Montana. Livingston, Montana didn't exist when the first Crow Indian agency did. But um, so that is what Fort Parker was. And so we started talking about Fort Parker. And one of the reasons that it was interesting to me is because I had grown up in Livingston and hadn't heard much about this very historic and very important place. And so as I was now, you know, coming into my, uh, gosh, what was it, 40s? I don't know. I was, I was, you know, up there in age, and I wanted to learn more about this place. And so just from a personal standpoint at this point. So we started talking about Fort Parker and, um, and started talking about the need for this place for people to know more about this place. And of course, the, um, the Crow Nation and, and uh, Abzalaga people knew about this Indian agency, the location of this Indian agency, but people who are non-Native did not know much about it. Um, there is a marker there. There is a designation off the highway that shows where this place is, but most people um, didn't really, hadn't really stopped or didn't really know much about it. So we started kind of talking about this place. And Marcia, maybe you could talk a little bit about um, how things evolved from there. Well, the, you know, we, the first thing we wanted to do was try to gather some information. There wasn't much information there at the site itself. Um, and so we took a field trip up to the SHPO's office in Helena. Um, and we met with Mark Baumler, who was the SHPO at the time. And he showed us to the file cabinet and opened the file for Fort Parker. And it, it was a very tiny little file of about five documents that so were was, in there. But was the were... site actually recorded then? So there was like a site form filled out, but no one had ever done any yes. work there, really. There had been a little bit of archaeology done there. Um, I think by Larry Laren, an archaeologist in the area, um, recording some teepee ring sites and that sort of thing. But um, the site form was very... Um, um, 
it was it it wasn't really um, there wasn't much to the site form. Any excavation, or was it yeah. sort of surface, um, just surface identifying survey. the outlines? Yeah, it, it was just mostly surface survey. Some artifacts had been recovered, and they were at the Yellowstone Gateway Museum. Um, and uh, and but the the there was very little. The documentation really was very thin, particularly about the history and story. Uh, there wasn't really much there um, in terms of what the what happened at the place. It was um, the, just really sort of descriptions of the site. Uh, there was a small map. There was. Um, a list of the sort of surface finds they'd found. So there wasn't really much of anything, but it was kind of our first start. And we had a little bit of an outline now. We had some dates. We had uh, kind of a sense of where this place was. Um, and that was kind of um, the beginnings of what became and is ongoing um, of the Fort Parker project. And um, and then from that point, um, Crystal and I started spending more time studying, researching, pulling more information together. Um, and we started to, um, I started to travel along with Crystal when she did some of her project archaeology workshops. Um, and then we went up to um, Glasgow for a conference. Was it the Montana History? Uh, which conference was that? Was it the Montana it the, History Conference? Yep, Montana History Conference. Yep. Yeah. And uh, that was must have been around, man, what, 2008, something 2008. like that, 2007, 2008, maybe? Yep, yep. Yeah, something like that. So at the conference, we were, um, we went to a session by a group of, um, I believe it was Blackfeet uh, um, students who were talking about the role of historical trauma within the tribe and within their understanding of their history. And, um, and it was so striking to us to really start to listen to the role that history has to play in the way people see themselves and in the way communities see themselves and the way um, that history can still affect communities today. And it was really quite stunning for us. And it was a very long drive. I remember to Glasgow, I think it was about a five hour drive up and a five hour drive back and the entire way back all we could do is just talk about historical trauma and what it meant in the in in the native american communities we talked about it in the, the jewish holocaust uh context and it, we just started to really think about how history has a role to play in bringing these stories to light and potentially helping in healing these communities and so that was sort of the the beginnings of um, of our conversation around making history relevant. So let me um, and then it all came. Yeah, let me interrupt okay. just for a minute, Marcia, because just for our listeners, I want to make sure they understand. You know, Fort Parker is that first agency where, for the very first time, Crow people were. Um, asked to stay within the confines of a reservation and not to be able to move around anymore to find their food. And they were to be taught farming and given annuity goods and be taught English. And, and it was the beginning of the reservation or the beginning of this transition, really this dramatic transition from the way they've always been able to make a living to um, a completely different way of life. And so you guys find this site and realize not a lot's been written about it. Very little physical work has been done and I love that it's this sense of place, this location. That's what kind of brought you guys together, touched you, and you realizing this is such a powerful, important moment because it wasn't even occupied that long. But it's an incredibly powerful, pivotal moment in the lives of, of the Crow people and then similar agencies would be for other mm -hmm. tribes. But then along the line, as the, you're figuring all this out and starting down that path, you go to this conference and you start hearing about the direct importance and relevance of all the trauma from, right, especially the 1850s forward, of, of the dramatic change. So it's all yeah. kind of coming together in that car ride back. Okay, is that is that about where we're at now? Yeah. Okay, okay, go on from there. Okay. Yeah, yep, exactly. And then I, the next step takes place on Crystal's deck, and I'll let her tell that story. <laughs> so, you know, we kind of were thinking about this, um, this bigger picture, and you know, we had been doing the research on Fort Parker, but we started thinking about all these histories that needed to be told and these histories that aren't pretty and these histories that have kind of been shoved under the rug and, and not told. 
um, because they are hard to hear. And so we thought about this a lot, and we talked a lot about this, and we decided uh, we kind of were sitting on my deck one day. We had a Fort Parker research day, and we were talking about this bigger picture stuff on my deck. And we decided, we said, you know, we should we should start an organization that really talks about these histories and talks about these hard histories and, and really brings this to the public, doesn't just keep them in the ivory towers of these academic universities, but really brings this information out to the public. And so we were writing our notes that day, and we still have these notes because to us, these notes are our founding documents. They're really important to us. And so we were talking about how important it was to um, – come to this cultural crossroads and really speak to that. And so we have all these notes that have all these important words on them that really are, you know, uh, some of our founding ideas. And that's the day we came up with the name Extreme History. And so uh, right on my deck, and we have it written on those notes, Extreme History. And that's what we wanted to do. We wanted to kind of really break open this history and really talk about those hard things and and do it in a way that's engaging through stories, um, through personal histories, making history personal, you know, those sorts of things. So those are kind of all those ideas that we have written down on this piece of paper. And so that was the day. So we talked about it that day, and it kind of scared us both because it was a really, um, uh, you know, we knew that it was going to be a hard thing to do to form an organization to do this sort of work. And so it kind of scared us a little bit. And so we kind of pulled back. And of course, I was working full time at another job and Marcia was working in Livingston. And, and so we kind of pulled back for a few months. But then I, I kept it was I kept thinking about it in the back of my mind and thinking, you know, we really need to do this because it's really important. And this is probably in about 2009. And um, this is really an important thing to do. So Marcia came over to my house one night, and this was, I don't know, Marcia, three or four or five months later after after we had talked about this on my deck. And we really hadn't talked too much yeah. more about it. And um, so Marcia came over one night, and I said, Marcia, we've got to do this thing. We've got to do this extreme history thing. And so she says, okay, I'm on it. I'll start the website tomorrow. And that's what she did. She started the website <laughs> the next day because Marcia doesn't, she doesn't waste time. She gets on it. She's a doer. She's a doer. Awesome. And so um, I was ready to go, and, uh, but I know Crystal is going to take a little while to get her um, to get her there. So uh, I I had even in the background been sort of like writing things up and thinking about things and organizing things because I I knew that at some point this was going to happen. So um, when and she, she was more she otherwise life, committed than you were, so you right. were you were yeah. willing to kind of give that space and until you had figured out a way that you could keep your job, but take this plunge yeah. into to something right. that had a very different mission. So um, bef- before I ask you about that mission, um, I want to just pause and say, I mean, holy moly, given what's going on today with this backlash against critical race theory by people who don't even know what it is, but mm-hmm. the whole idea of understanding history, not all of it, not just the fairy tales that have been often told, not the scrubbed clean version, the whole version, so we can understand why many communities, why many descendant communities have this historical trauma, are still dealing with it, to not pretend that people should just get over it and racism is gone. It is baked into our legal and economic institutions. It is ridiculous that people don't want to face that. And it empowers us all to know this information. I was horrified when I went back to graduate school much later in life and and found out all the things I never learned growing up. So I, I, I'm just, I remember just being so overwhelmed and excited by what you guys were willing to take on and very terrified. And so I sat in the wings, which is, <laughs> which is what I, I did for a while. So but we, kudos we, to you we, guys. We pulled you in kicking I and got screaming. Sucked in. Yeah. I got sucked in. I wanted to get sucked in, but you had to, you had to do it. So, but Marcia, you have to, Marcia, you have to tell the story about the, the website and, and how that kind of came. All right. Yeah. So, so, you know, we brainstormed on the deck all kinds of ideas and catchphrases and mission statements and names. And 
What we originally came to in terms of the name was the Extreme History Movement. And that was the name we had decided to go forward with because we didn't want it to be just a, we didn't want it to be about us and we didn't want it to be just a project. We wanted it to be a whole movement. We wanted it to inspire other people and to create a movement going forward that we were going to all resolve to tell history in its rawest form and its reality and truth. Um, so that was, I, I left crystals with the idea in my head that it was going to be the extreme history movement and somewhere between getting out of my car and the next morning when I started the website it turned into the extreme history project I don't know how that happened but I just had some kind of a brain fart and it's like that's where it came from so it ended up being the extreme history project though we had intended it to be the extreme history movement but we're well, still we're happy with and it, it is and it is a movement I although I'm glad you didn't say movement it I don't think the ring is as good. I think Extreme History Project's better. But I want to, you did write a manifesto, though. I mean, even though you didn't get movement in the title, you guys wrote a manifesto. And would it be okay if you guys read it? Do you yeah. have it? Because yeah. I oh, yeah. um, I think this encapsulates probably the conversation you had on your deck. Yeah. And really yeah. the spirit so. of what you envisioned and what you guys have tried to have as sort of the guiding force in everything that extreme history has taken on in the last 10 years. Yeah. Um, so Crystal yeah. is is pulling it up here. And I think it's, um, for me, one of those things, it's on the website, right, mm-hmm. still. Um, <laughs> yeah. And yeah. I, I just think it's uh, well thought out, well stated, very, very powerful. And I, I hope when people do go to the website that they actually take a little time to read it because I I feel like not only has it withstood, you know, the last decade, it's, it's just as relevant, if not more. Okay, go ahead, Crystal. Okay. All right. Here it is. And, and Marcia wrote this. This is the historical activist manifesto. We, the historical activists, are committed to bringing cultures together through dialogue, history, archaeology, stories, or any means necessary, in full caps, Um, eradicating ignorance and promoting unity through education and interaction, connecting people with places and objects that express the historical moment, exploring and creating new avenues of transmitting knowledge, actively engaging in political and social revolutionary paradigm shifts, committing random acts of history. <laughs> there it is. That is the manifesto. There it is. Yay. <laughs> and that really does, that really did, was born out of that um, paper of notes that Crystal and I came to. I mean, I've, I formulated it into that document, but it really came from both of us. It was really just sort of reading through what we had um, put together and organized and thought through and uh, just kind of condensing it into an actual document. And we, you know, we wrote it as as our mission statement, but we wanted it to not just be a mission. We wanted it to be a manifesto. That's how strongly we felt about it. And that's why we call it the, the our, our manifesto, the historical activist manifesto. Yeah. Yeah. And and the organization has, has um, continued to grow and evolve. And you, you do actually have a, a different mission statement now I know right. as you have to apply for grants and do things <laughs> the manifesto probably didn't yeah. fit the word limit requirement so what right. is what <laughs> what is the mission statement currently so the mission statement is making history relevant so that is our mission short statement. and sweet short and sweet and you know we've we've worked through the mission statement a lot in a lot of different workshops and things like that but it kind of comes down to it that is what we want to do and so we just keep it at that you know making history relevant and so um, that explains really what we want what we want to do. But I do whip out that manifesto quite a bit as well, and and in grant applications, <laughs> but in other places too. And you know, I really love it when I see other people reading it and and speaking about it and talking about it because it you know it, it it was born on the deck that day for sure. Yep. <laughs> We're going to take a quick station break. You are listening to The Dirt on the Past with co-hosts Crystal Alegria and Nancy Mahoney on KGVM Bozeman. We're speaking today with Marsha Fulton about the founding of the Extreme History Project. Okay, so let's talk about um, 
once the organization was born, manifesto written, website up, um, what were some of those first foundational projects that Extreme History did? Go ahead, Marcia. Well, the first thing we needed to do was to to make ourselves legitimate. Um, So we needed to um, write a 501c3, uh, which we did right, you know, in the post 9-11 climate. Um, So the fact that our our name was Extreme History, I think, caused some problems and got us a bit of a delay. It ended up taking about, was it about three years before we got the final? Um, I think it was two. two It was two. Yeah. Yeah. It took a lot longer than we had anticipated, but that was our first step in, in, um, is, is to gather you know, everything together and really think through the details of this um, organization, um, which we compiled in a document called Foundations, which kind of lays out not only our manifesto, but kind of all of our, our plans, our goals, our theoretical approaches. It kind of uh, encapsulated all of that. So that was really the first step is to get the 501c3 up and running so that we could, in fact, actually do um, fundraising for the organization and for the projects and things that we wanted to to accomplish. Um, I think the very first really big project we undertook was working with the Archaeological Conservancy to purchase the actual site of Fort Parker. Um, It was in private hands. Um, A private family had owned uh, the, the site as part of their farm and their ranch. Um, And they had taken great care of it, um, and we knew under their control that it was going to be fine. But we were worried that at some point in the future, if that ever were to be sold, we didn't know what would happen with the site. And we thought it was really vital that that site be preserved. Um, So we were able to connect with the um, Archaeological Conservancy through one of their board members who lived in Livingston and uh, became a friend. Um, And she enabled us and helped us uh, connect with the the full board. And and through that process, we worked with the Conservancy and we raised money uh, through a lecture series, which we started at the Museum of the Rockies. And it was founded under um, with the um, in partnership with the Conservancy, who did, in fact, fund it for the first couple of years uh, as a means of us being able to promote the purchase of the Fort Parker site. But it it grew into something so much bigger and so much more than we had anticipated because people really, really loved coming to the museum and and listening to these lectures from historians and archaeologists, anthropologists, um, that were really bringing sort of that forefront, bringing to the forefront their their cutting edge research that would just never really see the light of day in the public's eye. So um, it really kind of grew out of that. So I think that was kind of like our next really big project that's continuing and still ongoing and made it through COVID on Zoom, (laughs) which is uh, still exciting. And still on Zoom. And maybe we'll continue to be on Zoom. I don't know. You know, who knows? We'll see. We'll see. (laughs) (laughs) That was an incredible um, project to take on to get the Nature Conservancy to be able to Um, purchase the land and raise that money and that's something that's you know has a permanent legacy so that's that's been a huge contribution Um, and you've also done some some other projects that are a little bit more fun and uh, have benefited the local community so what are some of those yeah, we, you know, we we did the Virginia City Field School with you, Nancy. We, yeah. we pulled you in. I think that was the yeah. first um, project we pulled you in on. But it was a collaborative um, project. And, of course, collabor- collaboration is the name of our game in extreme history. We That is one thing that was one of our founding ideas is that we wanted to collaborate with people and work collectively with with a lot of different organizations. And so we really founded Extreme History on that basis that, you know, we um, we are the bringer together of people <laughs> um, to do these cool things and to do these um, amazing projects. So Virginia City um, Field School was one of them. So, we, so um, what we did is we uh, – there was – 
um, in Virginia City, which is a gold rush town here in Montana, they were needing some archaeology done. And um, and I knew the director of the Montana Heritage Commission. And so he had just, um, they had lost their archaeologist that we had been working with. So he asked us if we knew any archaeologists that would be interested in doing some excavation that they needed to do right in the heart of this really important um, gold rush town and it was right along the main street of this town and so we went to Nancy we went to you and you were were and are still but I'm working in the anthropology department and we kind of ran this by you and said would you be able to do this project and you said yes I could run it as a field school so so we had um, you running the field school along with Scott Scott Carpenter who we just talked to a couple weeks ago and then um and then um extreme history did a public component to this field school and then project archaeology that i was still working with did a teacher experience for this and so we we collaborated with this huge group of people to do this amazing field school and it was just we spectacular. Had some great blog posts um, from yeah. the students. We had a, Videos. a whole tent set up. Yeah. You know, Marsha made this amazing display of all the historic photographs, and we'd have the artifacts of the day, and then the students would give tours to all the tourists coming by. It was really a lovely experience. And then the the students and then the, the teachers, there were they K through 12 or K through 6 teachers yep, who had come. 12. They got to work with the undergraduate students. So it was a really wonderful collaboration. That was a fantastic project. Yeah, yeah. It, yeah, it was a really amazing opportunity, I think, to really bring the public component along with the educational component along with the actual archaeological component together in such an interesting way. I don't think I've ever seen a field school um, or even an archaeological project that is, has been so collaborative and so um, multifaceted. It was really an exciting project to work on. Right. I have such great memories of that, and so do all the, the students who were involved. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about the, the suffrage events that you Extreme History was involved with yeah. for the centennial. Marcia, you want to talk about this? Sure. Uh, well, Montana celebrated the centennial of the women's vote in, uh, was it 2017? 2014. 2014. So, you know, we, we knew that this was going to be a, a, a big year and we wanted to take this on as a, a, a uh, as an opportunity to, to educate the community around, you know, who were the primary women that, that really fought for suffrage in Montana and what their stories were and and, you know, so we wanted to bring that to light. So we um, we uh, again collaborated with a variety of different groups and organizations to to do several projects. And I'm trying to remember what they are. <laughs> well, one of them, one one of them, Marcia, is we did um, we did a reading at the county courthouse. Yeah, there you go. We did. That's yeah. right. We read the um, the Declaration uh, of Sentiments of Sentiments at the county courthouse, um, and so, then we did go ahead. Uh, and I was just going to say the reading of the Declaration of Sentiments was really wonderful. Um, it was a document that was created by um, Katie Stanton and um, Susan B. Anthony, and they um, and and so when we had members of the public come to this event and we just had whoever wanted to come up and read a paragraph come up and read a paragraph and so we had all these people in the audience and you know we just let it randomly happen where whoever wanted to come up and read next would come up and they and they did and it was so neat to hear that in all these different women's voices and even young women uh, there was like a little a girl that was probably nine or ten years old and she came up and read um, a paragraph, and man, that if that doesn't bring tears to your eyes, I, I don't know what know. will. And wow. it 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 yeah. was pretty powerful. So that was one thing. But then, you know, um, we did a, a whole series of events, and you know, we did the parade. Ladies, I yeah. remember <laughs> dressing up yeah. in a Victorian hat that I made myself. And being forced yes. in the heat to walk down Main Street in this Victoria and, and thinking, okay, I must yes. really like this organization because I am not a dresser up and walk parade down the street kind of lady, especially not in a big ass hat with a flower on it. 
So that was the suffrage parade, right? We did that. <laughs> it was not a good Thirty or forty women, I think, all together, and we had banners and posters. We got to get some um, photos up on the website of that. If they're not, it's just that was great. That was great. And you know, one thing, Marcia, that I loved about that. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. No, I was just going to say we were led on horseback, right? With um, oh, um, that's right. Oh, yes. Um, what's her name? Dorothy Bradley. Dorothy Bradley. Dorothy Bradley. Fantastic. Amazing. Wow. That was Came amazing. out on horseback and she led led the group down the down the um, main street. It was incredible. It was an incredible. And we got cheers all the whole all way down. over. It was wonderful. We had signs yeah. and cheering. No, it was really it was fun. Yeah. It was yeah. fun. And not not my favorite thing to do, but I did enjoy it. I know. I'm, I'm glad you did it. <laughs> I, I was glad yeah. to do it. Yeah. It was yeah, it was great. Yeah. People people still talk about that. You know, people still come in and talk about that. Yeah. How fun that was. That that participated but also people that saw it, you know, really, really loved that. So, so, so now I want to move on and ask you about um, the Nevada City Cemetery Project because this is quite a big project and I think an important one, and and it has a lot of aspects. So, um, so maybe in in sort of a little bit of time here, can you give us a sense of how that came about and and what Extreme History was able to do with that that cemetery project? Go ahead, Marcia. Sure. Well, um, there was um, uh, there was some interest in looking at the cemeteries in both Virginia City and Nevada City. And a, a friend of ours, Dr. Riley Auger um, from the University of Montana, uh, was um, involved in one of the projects looking at the um, cemeteries in Virginia City. So we were kind of talking with her. She sort of shared her ideas about that with us. And, and uh, we also realized that there was this cemetery in Nevada City that really hadn't been really looked at or done much with. And so um, Crystal and I decided to sort of take that on as a project to um, document uh, what was there and to to map the, the cemetery because there really wasn't a good map at that point. Um, and um, and just kind of bring it to, to the public's awareness because it's kind of it was kind of lost in the haze there, um, and it had gotten um, put into some uh, a weird kind of category uh, from the um, uh, the state standpoint so that it wasn't actually being funded as a cemetery because it was still considered to be on school property because there had been a school nearby. So it wasn't really getting the funding that it really needed as well. So we thought by maybe working to document it and um, bring more attention to it that that might help to resolve some of those issues. And we also met up with a, a local woman in um, in Nevada or in Virginia City whose whole family uh, had been buried there. Um, Evelyn Johnson. <laughs> yep, Evelyn Johnson. Dear, dear Evelyn Johnson, she was just a wonderful woman and she was so like single-handedly taking care of this the cemetery herself amazingly um she was arranging for it to be mowed she was going up and cleaning off headstones um she was uh, really working hard to 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 care for the cemetery and also um advocating for the cemetery at the state level to make sure that um you know people were paying attention to it so she was thrilled that we were interested in coming in and 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 documenting and 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 helping to bring the story of the cemetery to light so we did we did it over the course of several summers we had uh, a group of volunteers that came out with us and we um first we mapped the whole cemetery uh, and and then we um, we uh, documented all of the headstones that we found. And while we were there, we also realized that there were quite a few unmarked graves that could be visually determined by sort of mounds on the surface of the cemetery and spaces between headstones. Um, and so we started to, to um, document those as well. We thought it would be really important that those get uh, recognized and noticed that they were there. Um, and then we also did some research in the um, Montana Post, the newspaper from the period, to try to figure out if there were names of folks that we knew were buried there but were not on the headstones so that maybe we could compile a list of names of people that were would have been in these unmarked graves. Most likely these 
these were um, some of the miners from the area that were started to be buried there prior to the cemetery becoming an actual cemetery. Um, so over the course of several years, we got all of that work done and we created a website that uh, that compiles all of this information with um, maps and all of the headstones and information so that people can have access and to find that information there too. Uh, so th I think along the course of doing that project, what we really came to realize, particularly working with Evelyn and how passionate she was about this place, is that she really made history personal to us. It wasn't just this this sort of um, abstract idea of a story in the past uh, of this place. It was really personal to her. And we just loved her so much and we wanted to do this for her. Um, and we really realized that history is personal always it's always connected to somebody all of history is a story of somebody's ancestor somebody's personal connection so um when you have that kind of um opportunity to work on a project that it really affects someone personally it really makes it a, such a much more significant project yeah and it's um the Nevada City Cemetery was, you know, the original sort of boot hill there as Virginia City had one, as Helena does, as we know from Ellen Baumler and, and folks, all these boot hills for these, especially these kind of boom and bust mining towns that started. But then Nevada City, as well as Virginia City cemeteries, can continue to be used. Um, and so as you were talking about, Marcia, those unmarked graves that you could, you could get an indication of from the surface, then, Crystal, you both... Um, enlisted the help of Tom Rust, mm -hmm. Dr. Tom Rust, who's at um, universe, uh, Montana State University um, Billings. And um, he came out with you all and did some ground penetrating radar, I believe, yeah. and maybe also magnetometer. And, and what was that like? And what, what were the results of that work? So um, when we had done kind of the visual survey, we found that there was about 250 unmarked graves just from what we could see on the ground. So Tom Russ, so we got a grant from the Montana History Foundation and paid Tom um, to come out um, and do magnetometry and ground penetrating radar, along with our colleague Marcia um, Marcia Small. And so the two of them came out and did this work and spent about a week at Nevada City Cemetery and did this um, kind of this under-the-surface look to see how many unmarked graves there were. And come to find out there's about 320-ish um, unmarked graves there. So, uh, uh, you know, a large number of graves um, are unmarked. There's um, less, you know, there's, there are marked graves there as well, but many more unmarked than marked graves in the Nevada City Cemetery. And of course, that's because many of those early people who were buried there were probably miners who had come out to Montana without family and didn't have um, you know, didn't have anyone to mark the grave. And so, or maybe a wooden marker was put up and then over the years that wooden marker disintegrated and was lost. And so... But in many cases, you would have been buried then by people who maybe don't didn't even, even know, know you. you right. Maybe didn't even know your name. And of course, there were no such thing as, you know, people who would make headstones at that point. I yeah. mean, Montana wasn't even a territory, much less a state, and we barely had people out here. Right. I mean, so it's a fascinating project that talks about that very earliest history yeah. in, in our state. Um, yeah. So I think that's fascinating. Mm -hmm. And I, I love that so much of Extreme History's projects revolve around um, place. And so the, the last kind of thing I want to ask you about in this section about these these founding projects you all have engaged in are um, these bus tours that um, I've never been on, <laughs> but have always wanted to go on. Uh, and I know you, you've done um, several of those, but bringing people to places where history happened. And, and these bus tours, I feel like, are sort of like an example of the walking tours on steroids. You know, mm -hmm. you're actually physically getting in a vehicle and, and then taking people farther afield um, to have them have that opportunity to experience Montana history in the place where it happened. So tell us a little bit about some of those bus tours you've done over the years. Yeah. Well, I think we did our first bus tour in maybe 2014, somewhere around in there. And um, and it was it was a great tour. Um, we went to um, 
We went to a teepee ring site that was along the Madison River here in Montana. And we took our um, colleague Shane Doyle with us, and he was able to speak to that um, that really impressive and huge teepee ring site that is out there um, along the river. We then traveled to um, we then traveled to a place called uh, the Headwaters State Park, which is a state park where Lewis and Clark um, were at for a time, and where the headwaters of the Missouri River start. And our other good friend, Bill McConnell, was there waiting for us, and he did a lot. He worked with the kids on the bus tour and did some flint napping and some fire making and things like that. They were able to, people were able to throw a atlatl at the state park and um, kind of really immersed in some of Montana's history and the past. Um, some wonderful women, Karen James and Beth Nair, put on this fabulous lunch for us, <laughs> which was unbelievable. <laughs> so they had lunch waiting for all the bus, per- all the bus people on the bus. And, um, and then we ended the day at the um, Madison Buffalo Jump, which is a very traditional um, bison jump that is located here in Gallatin Valley. And so where we saw a rattlesnake, <laughs> which was a little terrifying, the group found a rattlesnake. I'm like, oh, my gosh, please don't let anyone get bitten by a rattlesnake on our first bus tour. <laughs> <laughs> the unexpected um, surprises. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But it was a great day. Yeah. And, and I remember, Marcia, when we got on the bus that morning, um, you know, we, we got on everybody. I mean, the bus was packed full. It was just full of people. There was probably 120 people on that bus. I don't know. It was packed. And I remember um, getting everybody on and you and I sitting down and just looking at each other like, oh, my God, what did we do? <laughs> is this, is, is this going to work? <laughs> A, l- a little more How success selling tickets than you anticipated, perhaps. <laughs> but you guys just plunge in. You always do. Yeah, we do it without thinking until the moment it starts, and then we look at each other in panic. <laughs> <laughs> but but it- I also wanted to mention, I just wanted to add, too, that it was Dr. Jack Fisher at the yes. Buffalo Jump that, that gave a, a wonderful talk and answered questions about the Buffalo Jump, too. So we had a, a great group of folks that were um, that supported us on that whole thing. And, and on the bus as well, we had um, Shane would talk a lot about what the landscape meant to the to the crow people and um and how people lived in the past there and so it was just it was an incredibly moving and educational day the whole thing start to finish and exhausting <laughs> but really fun nice I mean, everybody really enjoyed it despite the fact that there was no air conditioning on yeah. the bus Ooh, <laughs> it was yeah. about 90 degrees in subsequent bus trips, I, I've I've said we have to have air conditioning. We cannot do we cannot go on a, an an un air conditioned bus. So we've continued to do the bus um, the bus trips. Of course, we haven't done we didn't do any last year, but um, because of COVID. But we hope to do more in the future too. So yeah, they're great. Yeah, uh, I'll bet, and I'll bet people are clamoring for for more of them. So so Marcia and Crystal, as extreme history has grown and it's evolved. Um, just reflect back on what you think it is about this organization that has attracted people, that's caught their attention, has captured their imagination, and has has drawn people to the organization and the projects that it's engaged in. Well, I think from the very beginning, we wanted to make this organization something that was different, something that was a new way of thinking about history. Um, and we wanted it to, to, to engage with young people. We really wanted it to, we knew that older folks would probably come along and be interested, but we really wanted to engage a more youthful audience. And, um, and so when I designed a lot of the original graphics at, program for the the organization I was really thinking about it in terms of being a much more youthful um, idea and I think some of our graphics and some of our taglines and things were kind of attractive early on but still attractive to a lot of older folks as well Um, but I think it's really the idea that we were storytellers I think ultimately 
Um, it's the storytelling aspect of what we do, and that's always been a part of it. Um, I, I think that, you know, every we often hear the stories of how folks, you know, learned history in school, and it was so boring, and they didn't like it, but when they come on one of our events, they love it, and they're so excited, and I think what happens is when you learn history in school, it's such a left-brain process. It's all about dates and time frames and you know timelines and and it it just doesn't engage your right brain which is your imagination and so i think the story the narrative is what really gets people excited um and it also creates the opportunity to relate to people in history so you hear a story of, of a person in history and you you can relate to them as a as a human as uh and it, it humanizes the past in, in ways that um, that just learning history from a textbook doesn't often do it. So those are really have always been sort of the foundations of what we wanted to do to make history really come alive for people, getting people on the place so they can sense it multisensorily, they can smell it and feel it and taste it and touch it, um, as well as hearing the stories of the people and really humanizing these people and bringing them into their lives in, in ways that uh, their traditional history classes weren't doing. So I think that that's really what connects to people. How about you, Crystal? What would you add to that? I think that's, you know, I think Marcia said it really well. I think um, that also that collaboration is important. You know, I think that people are, are drawn to this because it is such a collaborative effort. You know, we always bring in lots of different voices, um, descendant community voices, and, you know, just um, people with a lot of knowledge that um, are speaking to some of this um, this information. And, 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 you know, also we we tend to have a good time with it as well. You know, we, um, we think that this history is so important and we have such a passion for it. And I think that kind of spills over and people get wrapped up in that with us, you know, and I think that that's what really draws a lot of people to what we're doing, to our projects, to our events, to our programs, is they see how much, how important, uh, what, how much we place an importance on this history and these people from the past and these events. And, you know, of course, we tell these stories with a lot of passion because we do believe that this, this is so important to get out to the public. So I think that that's one thing um, that is, is a part of extreme history as well that really engages people. And, you know, the empathy that we we talk about and we we kind of create that empathy as well and and have empathy for this history and i think people are um yearning for that and i think that people are yearning for this history that we're telling as well and i think they're just naturally um come to it because of that mm-hmm. i th- um i think there's all those things going on, on on different levels and i think a lot of the fun and the people involved in extreme history has just helped to keep it very fresh and and all of the cutting edge research that able to put out there but in a in a public friendly format Mm -hmm. you know much Mm -hmm. more engaging format has been so important and and such a a welcome thing in this community um so marcia let's talk about the fact that we are speaking to you while you are in maine um you moved out to boston (laughs) in 2016 but you didn't leave extreme history behind so we want to talk a little bit about what your role is now with extreme history, um, and and what do we have to look forward to still from uh, your involvement? Well, Crystal and I were wrenched apart <laughs> in uh, twenty what sixteen, I believe it was, when yeah. my husband's job took us back east. And uh, it's been a very painful and difficult transition for both of us as, uh, you know, we formed this organization together and never could ever imagine doing it without the other. That was kind of always the way we we thought of it. So um, so we had to really regroup when this happened and um, figure this out. And it's been kind of an evolution. And I think it's still in an evolutionary process as we've kind of figured out how um, 
how to do this while I'm so far away from the heart of it all out there. But I'm, you know, I'm so grateful that we have such a great team out there, including you, Nance, who you've done so much to help support um, Crystal through this process and to support the organization. And um, uh, and it's been really amazing to watch it bloom and blossom really without me. I'm thrilled at the way Crystal has taken it and and just really evolved it into something amazing and um, it just really excites me to think about what the future of it is out there. Um, as for my part, um, I can continue to be um, in a consulting capacity and Crystal and I still talk weekly um, about what's going on and, um, and I continue to work on the Fort Parker project um, writing up the research that we've compiled over the course of the last 10 years. Those, those first five documents have had many babies and we're up to about two or three thousand documents um, and uh, we're hoping to get that published at some point to tell the full story of what happened out there. Um, so that's really what I'm working on and that's kind of a full-time job right now because there's a lot to, to sort through. Yeah and um, what do we think about the future of extreme history Crystal, what do you think the future holds? Um, where is the organization going? Well, the future is bright for extreme history. And like Marsha and I have always said, we kind of are always running to catch up with extreme history. And you know how that is, Nancy. Yeah, I, I, am, I am learning. <laughs> yes. <laughs> because it has a life of its own. It really does. <laughs> it does have a life of its own. And it really, um, you know, it really has grown so much, you know, in these sh short 10 years, you know, that we've, um, it's a little over 10 years now, but you know, it's been, it's grown so much in these 10 years and, but we hope to have it continue to grow. We have great plans for extreme history. We really want to, um, of course, expand out and do a lot more public history programming and events and projects. And, you know, we'd really love to have an extreme history press at some point. We'd really love to have a media company involved with extreme history. Of course, we've started that with the dirt on with this podcast that we're on currently. <laughs> and, you know, we have to have more podcasts. And we hope to uh, continue our collaboration to work with to bring in postdocs and to bring in graduate students to work with us on specific projects. And we hope to um, expand our headquarters that we're in right now to um, to include a lot of other, um, of course, we've, we've got the bookshop that we um, formulated over COVID and then also gift shop and exhibits, continue to have revolving exhibits um, here in the headquarters building. And just really, you know, have a in-residence historian. Um, that would be, that's a dream, you know, kind of like a, you hear about in-residence artists or, you know, resident artists. Um, I'd love to have a resident um, historian that stays with us for a year um, and works on projects. I mean, there's, there's just so many places for us to go with Extreme History Project, and we're excited to go to those places. And um, we're, we're excited to get history out in all these different ways. We have so much capacity to to get history out there and tell those stories like Marcia was talking about we're that is our forte is to tell these stories and make history human I got that one in Marcia make history human yeah. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> exactly. you know to really tell these stories in a way that is engaging and so that's our goal and we you know we have a great team right now to do that we have an amazing board of directors, um, including, of course, you, Nancy, on that board of directors, but a lot of other amazing people, um, including Shane Doyle, who we've had on the podcast, Scott Carpenter, who we've had on the podcast, Kevin Koistra, who we've had on the podcast. <laughs> um, those are the founding members of our board. <laughs> and, um, um, and Elaine Hale, who is amazing. We'll have her on soon, too. And then um, Julia Stralu, um, who is she she's just does so much she does our newsletter for us and um and leslie chrismond and leslie gilmore we call them l1 and l2 <laughs> 
And then, of course, now we have Marsha Small <laughs> on our board as well. So, so we, um, you know, we we have lots of places to go, and like I said, the future's bright. Yeah. Um, I'm exhausted and just like, hearing that. Yeah, no, yeah, too. And, yeah. <laughs> go ahead, go ahead, Marcia. I just wanted to add that one of the foundational ideas that we had from the beginning that I hope to to see come to fruition at some point was is to inspire other communities to create a similar kind of project within that. And one of the ways we wanted to facilitate that was to create a handbook, um, the Historical Activist Handbook, which basically lays out how and, uh, how and why we created this organization and how people can apply what we did here in their communities so that they have an opportunity to learn about their real history and the stories that, that have gotten swept under the rug in their, in their areas too, so that people can learn more about that and bring those stories to light. All right. Well, on that, Marsha and Crystal, our our time has run out, and it was so wonderful to be able to talk about the origins of this organization and kind of have this as a record of of that and and have you guys tell your story. Um, So thank you both of you so much for taking the time today. Um, And thanks to all of our listeners out there for joining us. If you love this podcast, please share it with a friend and make sure to subscribe so it shows up for you each week on your podcast feed. We also have a Facebook page called The Dirt on the Past, so make sure to find that and like it. And thank you again, Marsha, for joining us today. And thanks to all of you listening. We hope that you can join us again to find out more about The The Dirt Dirt on on the the past. Past. A big thank you to our editor and sound guru, Steve Durbin, who we woke from a nap today to do this spot podcast specially. I hope this doesn't might, get edited out. He might edit that out. I our don't know. social media maven, Maggie Mulcahy. We need to keep those young ones involved because yes. they know what's fresh and alive on social media. Yeah. And then original music by Lawson Alegria, which will be changing out yes. when we come back after our hiatus. You promised. So I we'll promised. see. Okay. We'll see. All right. We're no, excited. We're excited we, to hear what it is. We won't see because he is working on a new piece for our intro so i will help it's so exciting for season two there will be a new new intro music i will be dancing to it okay (laughs) all right all right extreme history dirt on the past out for a couple weeks You've been listening to The Dirt on the Past, a podcast of the Extreme History Project and Gallatin Valley Community Radio, KGVM. To hear more episodes, visit our website at theextremehistoryproject.org. Thanks for listening, and until next time, keep searching out The Dirt on the Past.